My guest today is Michael Zweig. He's an economist, a labor historian, professor emeritus at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He's an activist and he's an author of numerous books and articles, including The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret. Another one, What's Class Got to Do With It? And I've been meaning to ask you, Michael, is that an allusion to uh, a song by Tina Turner? Well, not uh, explicitly, because what Tina Turner's song is, is that love doesn't have anything to do with it. But <laughs> if you actually listen to the lyrics, that and my uh, point is that uh, class actually does have quite a lot to do with it. But uh, what could I do? <laughs> Michael Zweig has a, a forthcoming book scheduled for fall release entitled Class, Race and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. It's published by PM Press. So today we're hoping, Michael, that you'll give us an overview of the prospects for labor, for organizing and militant labor action in 2023 and during the remainder of Joe Biden's first term. But before we focus on the prospects for labor in the current landscape right now, can you give us some of the historical context that sets the stage for what is now unfolding? I'm, of course, referring to what Noam Chomsky describes as the four decades of class warfare waged against working people that has been the hallmark of the neoliberal era beginning in 1980 with the administration of Ronald Reagan. So what were some of the, the battles and setbacks for organized labor during those dark decades? And what is or what might be the formula of what appears to be the current rebirth of a militant labor movement today? Well, I would say, first of all, that class warfare is characteristic of capitalism from its beginnings, and not just the, the neoliberal version of it that began with the Reagan administration, but uh, the idea of labor and capital being at loggerheads and being involved in a deep antagonism and deep struggle has been true from the very beginning of industrial development. And in the United States, in the later part of the 19th century, as unions began to organize, there were violent repression of those unions. There were militias called out. There were private goon squads that were called out, like the Pinkertons. There was a state police uh, used, National Guard. So violent and uh, class struggle is not just a current problem. It's a long part of American history and capitalist history uh, everywhere that there's been capitalism. Now, what uh, Noam Chomsky is talking about is the more recent challenge to labor that arose in the Reagan administration. The prospect for union progress and for worker progress through organizing unions was really consolidated in the Depression era, in the New Deal legislation of Franklin Roosevelt in 1935 in the Wagner Act and then in the Fair Labor Standards Act and other legislation in the later part of the 1930s. And in that climate of labor protection, government protection of unions, unions flourished and, you know, millions of workers uh, joined unions and unions became a very su substantial force, not only at the workplace, but at the polls and in public policy questions all through and after World War II and into the 50s, 60s. And the corporate elite of this country never really accepted that. 
they had to bow to it because there was enough pressure and enough organized capacity among labor through strikes and through uh, political campaigns to push back the power of capital. The capital never really uh, agreed to that. And they organized themselves. And what Chomsky's talking about is that they really came to swing the balance of power back into the predominance of capital over labor when Reagan came to power and the destruction of the Air Traffic Controllers Union in 1981, a union which ironically had supported Reagan in the presidential campaign in 1980. So the last 50 years, 45 years, 43 years, whatever you count, from the late 70s into the 80s until now, has been a period of very steady erosion of worker rights and the rights of workers to organize unions. That's happened not so much in legislation as it's happened through uh, court rulings and administrative rulings in the National Labor Relations Board so that the uh, ability of workers, for example, to go on to management property to organize. We just had a decision in California that the Supreme Court agreed that union representatives were not allowed to go on to farmland where farm workers were working to organize and talk to those workers because that was a violation of the private property rights of the farm owners. Now, that was a new ruling. That was a new a, a shift in the balance of power where workers could go, unions could and did have the authority with government support to go on to farmland, for example, and talk to workers. They can't do that anymore. They can get thrown off. So how is somebody supposed to communicate? How is a union organizer supposed to communicate with those workers out in the field? It makes it much, much more difficult if you can't go there. So that's just one example. And, uh, you know, we've just had a court case that came out of Wisconsin, uh, a Teamsters uh, case where there were Teamsters uh, that were involved in a labor dispute with a concrete company that manufactures concrete. And uh, the Teamsters struck that facility when there was concrete, wet concrete in the trucks that was uh, on its way to delivery, and the Teamsters went on strike. They didn't deliver the concrete. They uh, kept the bin spinning so that the concrete wasn't congealing, but it was a danger to the property of the company. And the company went to court and sued the union for damages because they kept the concrete in the trucks instead of taking it for delivery. And that went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court just a couple of weeks ago decided, for example, in this example, that that was a, a violation of the property rights of the company, that that strike action, because it endangered the property of the company, was a violation of their property rights. So that's another example of how, legis not legislation, but court rulings and uh, other administrative uh, rulings have shifted the balance of power and weakened the ability of labor to strike, labor to organize, labor to uh, bring contracts to first resolution. And those are all things that I think Chomsky's been talking about, where it's a once it's a class warfare and the ruling class is winning. Well, how would you characterize the shift that we believe is happening in the labor movement now, where there's an upsurge in organizing 
young people are getting involved. There's a seems to be a almost a national change in the attitude toward organized labor in the country, which is abetting these organizing campaigns that we're seeing. And maybe we could mention some of the ones that have been initiated and some of them have met with quite a bit of success. In fact, there's actually some strikes. These are unions that are longstanding unions that, that have struck and, and had victories. One I'll mention just to start would be the, the strike at Rutgers University, where there was a victory for the staff. And I believe it was not just the teaching staff, but across the board, different ranks of workers at the university had a, a success there. Right. At Rutgers, there were three unions that were involved there, uh, one representing the adjunct faculty, the part-time faculty, one or uh, an AFT local that represented the full-time faculty, and then there was a separate local, also an AAUP local that represented the medical professions and the health science workers. And the three of them struck together for, and they were out for a week, and they won some real victories for, particularly for part-time and low-wage workers and adjuncts and others in the Rutgers system, which is a state system. In New Jersey, state workers have the right to strike. In New York, where I live, public sector workers do not have a legal right to strike. So again, different states have different uh, restrictions and different opportunities for workers to exercise their power. But it's true that in uh, at, at Rutgers, that was a very good victory. I was struck, I think, by the, uh, not a pun there, but uh, by the idea that the uh, adjunct professors were involved there. The teachers, I did a lot of adjunct teaching myself. And I remember walking into the one of the dean's offices and saying, why are you only paying me $900 a semester for my teaching when I'm you know, working, not just the teaching, but doing all the preparation, blah, blah, blah. And you know, the guy just laughed in my face and said, well, if you don't like it, move on. Adjunct teachers at the college level are, I think, are extremely vulnerable. Was this the first time that adjunct teachers had been included in such a strike action and actually won some victory there? Well, it's certainly not the first time that academic unions of full-time faculty have taken on the issues of part-time and adjunct faculty. In my own union, the United University Professions, which represents 37,000 workers, uh, academic professionals at the State University of New, of New York, all throughout 30 campuses, we represent adjuncts and part-time faculty, and we represent non-tenure track full-time faculty too. And we have been championing their uh, needs for a long time. And actually, we just today came into uh, a contract, a tentative contract agreement with the state of New York, which offers further protections and further rights for adjunct and part-time and also non-tenure track full-time so-called contingent faculty. So the need for regular full-time faculty to pay attention to the needs of uh, adjuncts has been around for some time. The same thing was true in the City University of New York in CUNY. The Professional Staff Congress there had an, a real revolution in their leadership in the in the year 2000, it's already 23 years ago, where a new leadership was elected based on dedication to the needs of adjuncts. And the reason for that is that, uh, you know, 50 years ago, 75% of college classes were taught by 
full-time tenure-track faculty or tenured faculty. Now it's less than 25%. More than 75% are taught by part-time and non-tenure-track full-time faculty. So the need to protect the interests and the conditions of part-time and uh, non-tenure-track faculty bears directly on the interests of full-time regular tenure-track faculty because the non-tenure-track faculty are being used to get rid of tenure. And we need to protect tenure. We need to protect all the range of public sector employees in public higher education. And I think what we saw at Rutgers was uh, just another example of that. So let's talk about some of the other labor actions, sometimes with victory, sometimes not so much that have occurred and may be looming during this next period. One that I'll mention, and you can give us more information if you care to, is this uh, very interesting situation where in Georgia, workers at a bus manufacturing plant, you're talking about the deep south now where unions are almost considered the work of the devil, they actually did succeed in forming a union. They won a union victory there. It's not a tiny little plant. It's a substantial number of workers there. What can you tell us about that victory and what that pretends for other organizing, let's say, south of the Mason-Dixon line? Well, it pretends good things, but let's understand that it took over three years of organizing in that plant to get that. It's the steel workers that did it. It's the steel workers that brought together those, there was over 1,400 workers in that plant. So it is, it's a large manufacturing plant. They make Bluebird buses. People uh, all over the country uh, see those buses. That's their brand. It was a Bluebird bus. They're school buses. And um, the people in that plant, which is outside of Macon, Georgia, uh, worked for over three years over all kinds of management opposition all kinds of unfair labor practices, yet they pursued and persisted and got themselves a union uh, and was officially recognized and officially uh, certified. 80% of the workforce there voted, which is a very, very substantial percentage. There was a real interest in that workforce. And it was 60-40. It was not even close. It was a very substantial victory for the workforce in that plant. Now, it's, it's true that Georgia has a very low unionization rate. It's just it's less than 5%. It's, I think, 4.4%. But in that vicinity around Macon, there are other unions, and the steelworkers have other plants. They have a tire plant there and other union presence, so that it wasn't completely strange to have union activity there. P workers and people in the community had some appreciation, and in particular for the steel workers, because they were the ones who were in this other plant, in this tire plant. So it's it's a very good report. Now we'll see whether they can get a contract, because it's a very, very difficult step to get recognized to win an election. But once you win an election, you have to get a contract. And something like 40% of all union first elections don't reach a first contract in the first two years. So just because you have a union that was recognized over the sharp objection and opposition of management, that opposition isn't going to disappear. That opposition continues. And then you have this arduous task of negotiating 
And, uh, you know, I hope that they come up with that. That situation obtains, I think, in many, as you pointed out, many first organizing efforts where unions are voted in, they're approved and they're recognized, but the contracts are out of reach. Let's talk a little bit about the Starbucks situation. What can you tell us about that rather surprising effort? And another point to mention there to underscore is the, is the role that young people are playing in that. And also at Amazon, where it's not the old guard. It's, this is a new generation of organizing that's happening. But the problem there with Starbucks is these guys and gals have organized many shops, but they don't have contracts. Starbucks has something like 9,000 stores in, I don't know if that's in the U.S. or globally, but it's an enormously broad uh, company, as everybody knows, who's walked around in any city or town in America. There's a Starbucks. Now, here's another example of the difficulties that have been put in the way of workers in this class struggle that Chomsky was talking about. I think something like 190 Starbucks locations have organized unions. But the courts have ruled, and again, this is courts, it's not legislation. The courts have ruled that you have to negotiate shop by shop. They're not negotiating with Starbucks as an international company. They're negotiating with the franchisee in the Upper West Side or the Manhattan or the franchisee in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where they've organized or in Buffalo, New York or wherever. And that, of course, makes life much more difficult because now you have just the workforce in that one place organized against the franchisee, but also behind that is Starbucks, the whole corporation. And so the asymmetry of power is very, very, very difficult to overcome when you, when you come to the contract stage, even if you can get past the uh, organizing stage. For example, there was a lot made of Amazon uh, organizing at JFK 8, which was the first Amazon shop that really organized a union. It was, again, a pretty big shop. It was, I think, 1,500 people in that place. And Chris Smalls was one of the principal organizers of that. Uh, after he was fired for protesting no uh, safety in the early COVID stage, well, that was a long time ago. They, they, you know, it's well over a year ago. They don't have a contract. And for all the attention that they got and for all the uh, support and all the public uh, recognition and all the news coverage and everything else, mm -hmm. they don't have a contract. And Amazon isn't going to give them a contract unless they are forced to give them a contract. And that's very difficult to do one facility at a time. We're speaking with Michael Zweig, economist, labor historian, activist, professor emeritus at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and author of several books. Uh, forthcoming book is Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Looking forward to that release in the fall. My name is Richard Hill, and you're listening to WPKN. Michael Maybe you could comment on what to many seems like a very important and encouraging development, the involvement of young people in union battles, organizing struggles, walking on picket lines, and really developing a sense of class consciousness and militancy at this late stage of 
of you know where we stand after all the stuff you talked about about the neoliberal assault on workers and all the battles fought during the New Deal. What do you make of this new wave? Well, I think it's great. And I think that uh, people who are not beaten down by 40 years of being beaten down come into these situations, these work situations, the way that they're treated and the way that they're stressed with their limited pay when they go out and try to find a place to live, start a family, have kids, all that stuff is so far out of reach for so many people. And if you're not inured to it, if you're not just saying, well, that's just the way it is, and you get really pissed off. And you wait a minute, I don't like this. This isn't right. I don't want to be treated this way. That if I go somewhere else and take a hike, it's going to be the same thing. So there's nothing to do but stand and fight. And I think a lot of young people understand that because the their existence and, and the life experience that they have is very, very stressful. It's very, very difficult. And it's limiting. And young people don't want to be limited. They want to have a future. They want to have a way of thinking about what they're going to do and having a family and having a future. And that's a very powerful motivator. And I think that we're seeing that in the attitudes of a lot of young people, not only in their militants, but also in their political sophistication. And they're understanding that maybe capitalism isn't the be-all and end-all. And maybe uh, this class warfare has to be turned around so that it isn't so one-sided on the side of capital. And maybe labor has to be a class warrior in this uh, conflict. And they're starting to figure out how to do that. And they're looking around for allies and they're looking around for ways to think about it. Not just in the abstract, not just theoretical, well, you know, Marxism and, oh, what did Lenin say? But really on the ground and what do we do and how do we understand the class forces that are at play right here in River City? I think that that's a very, very powerful element of the labor scene today. And I'm very hopeful for it. Uh, Michael, as we uh, come down the home stretch, we're seeing this rise in frightening fascist organizing by not just Republican politicians who are promoting voter suppression at the level of state legislatures and also nationally with all kinds of proposals about banning books and anti-LGBT legislation and has the stench of fascist uh, rhetoric and action by a government. In the face of that, what role can and should labor play to make common cause with others who are facing these threats and have some kind of a united front? Well, see, the operative word in what you just said there is common cause. That uh, The labor movement and working people is really what we're talking about, are suffering under the assault of a corporate elite that is the same corporate elite that promotes all the racial division in the country, that wants to suppress racial independence and racial justice in this country. It's the same corporate elite that uh, wants to wage war and increase the military budget and make the military sacrosanct while they're cutting benefits for people who need food stamps. I mean, it's just really a bad situation. Now, from the point of view of labor, we were talking earlier about the difficulties of organizing. 
in this country, something like 10% of the labor force are actually in a union. But if you ask people, do you want to be in a union? Do you approve of unions? In this country today, about 60% of the people say, yes, we like unions. That would be fine. We'd want to be in a union. So only 10% are in, 60% would like to be in. That means that over 80% of people who want to be in a union are not in a union. And it's not because unions aren't trying to organize. It's because management is so powerful that it can suppress that organizing capacity. That's what we were talking about before. And that suppression comes from an organized corporate power, capitalist power. And that corporate power is also what is dividing the workforce by race, what is dropping down the living standards and the housing standards of people who are all over the country who maybe don't think of themselves as workers, but think of themselves as tenants and they have no place to live. There's a common cause there that we all have in challenging that corporate power. And I think that the ability of workers to organize and get past that corporate resistance is not so easily done shop by shop and business by business. It's done in the context of a broad social movement that shakes the whole country for power. And that is what is that united front or that common cause or that united activity that brings together all the different constituents in the country that are being suppressed and challenged by this neo-fascism that you've identified, which is very powerful. It's there. Trump gave it a play, you know, gave it permission, but it's certainly not just Donald Trump. And while there are certainly workers, particularly uh, white working people who support it, that's not where it comes from. It comes from the corporate elites that are promoting it, giving it money, and running candidates. I mean, it's such a joke to think that the Republican Party is going to be the party of the working class. It would help if the Democratic Party would be the party of the working class. Unfortunately, it's not. So we're in a situation that is very, very difficult politically because there is no organized political representation that can deeply challenge corporate power. And the task in the labor movement is to help to develop that not alone, but in conjunction with the environmental movement, the women's movement, the racial justice movement, uh, the movement about housing and homelessness, gender rights, all that stuff has a common foundation that we have to really seek. And the grounding and the footing for our movement has to be across all of that, because what we're dealing with across all of that is one common source of power which is the power of the capitalist class. And that's what has to be challenged. Michael Zweig, thank you so much for uh, giving us that history lesson and also an update on what's going on and what could happen if all things come together in this current landscape. I want to thank you once again for joining us here at WPKN. Always, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure and an edifying experience to have you. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.